Well, happy Father's Day. Dads, I know uh, somebody has probably already said it multiple times, but I just want to say, man, we are so thankful for you, appreciative of you for the way that you um, lead by example and sacrifice so much so often for your family and kids. Today, I hope your kids do everything you want to do and like nothing else. I hope you do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, and everyone has to do that because it's Father's Day and you can demand that, right? Like you have that right because you brought them into the world. So um, also, not only is today Father's Day, I just want to take a moment and just acknowledge uh, that one year ago this weekend, my family was in town for the first time as I was preaching as we were a candidate. And so it has now been a year since I met you guys. And so I want from my family to you guys as a Mount family, whatever campus you happen to be at, I just want you to know the last year has been so fun, so incredible. It has been great getting to know you. You are some of the most generous, sacrificial, Christ-centered people I have ever had the privilege of meeting, and it is an honor to do ministry with you in Northern Virginia, so thank you. Um, So today, we're beginning a new series titled Legendary. And over the next couple weeks, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at these key biblical figures, these key kind of legendary figures in scripture, and talking about how despite them being these ordinary, everyday, kind of just casual people, because of their dependence, because of their willingness to kind of lean into God, they did extraordinary and incredible things. And this morning, we're going to begin with our first story about a guy by the name of Joseph. Not Joseph from the New Testament, who was the father of Jesus married to Mary, but Joseph from the Old Testament. And we find the story of Joseph in the very first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. And it's interesting, when we read the book of Genesis, what we find is that Joseph's story gets more real estate or more ink than any other human character in the book of Genesis. And so Joseph's story, if you have your Bibles with you today, we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 37. That is where his story begins when Joseph is just 17 years old. So in honor of Joseph's 17-year-old self, I want you to do something for me this morning. I want you to reflect back and think for a moment on your 17-year-old life. Now, some of you that are kind of in your early 20s, maybe think back to when you were like 10, 11, or 12. If you're still a teenager, we're just glad you're here. Like, you can just think about life right now and how great it is. But for the rest of us, let's, let's reflect back on what it was like to be 17. Over the past week, as I've been preparing for this message, I was reflecting back on what 17-year-old Adam was like. And man, let me just tell you this. 17-year-old Adam had so many dreams and aspirations, and hopes, and goals, these, these big grand things, exactly of what his life was going to look like, how he had planned it and dreamed it would be. And let me just tell you this, none of those came true. You see, 17-year-old Adam, and I could go through the list and tell you, 17-year-old Adam did not go, I did not go to the college that I thought I was going to go to. I did not major in the major that I thought I was going to major in. I did not have the, I got married much younger than 17-year-old Adam thought he would get married. 
And not never in a million years did 17-year-old Adam think he would become a pastor one day. And when I look back over the course of my life over the past 23 or so years, there have been tons of ups and downs, tons of mountains and valleys, and none of those valleys, none of those difficulties are things that 17-year-old Adam would have ever planned or dreamed or imagined. What about you? Think about your 17-year-old self for a minute. Think about how you thought your life was going to turn out. Regardless of where you were born, regardless of where you come from, regardless of what campus you attend now, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of your faith journey, here's one thing I'm pretty certain of is that for the majority of us, for most of us, for probably all of us, the, the common unifying theme, despite all of our differences, the common denominator that we all have in common in life is that none of our lives turned out exactly like we had planned or hoped or imagined or guessed or dreamed. This morning, I can't think of a better person in scripture to look at when it comes to a life not turning out the way we thought it would than Joseph. Joseph's story is in essence a story that answers the question, what do you do when life doesn't turn out the way you thought it would? And so we'll pick up in Genesis chapter 37, and we'll start in verses 1 and go through 4 real quick. It says, Jacob, who was Joseph's father, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And it says, this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, when he brought their father a bad report about them. Let's, let's pause for a moment because maybe you're kind of new to this whole Christianity or church thing and you think sometimes when we look at these kind of key biblical legendary figures and heroes of the faith, if you want to call them that, what we assume sometimes is that their life was always different than ours. They always were on the straight and narrow. They always were passionately pursuing God and things for them were great because their greatness is a product of their nurture, their environment. And what we realize right from the very beginning about Joseph's life is his family was a mess. And maybe you're here today and your family is a mess. I want you to know you're not alone in that. Jacob's father, or Joseph's father, had 12 total sons from four different wives. And the two that are referenced here, Zilpha and Bilva, are actually sisters. And not only that, but Joseph's brothers and him had this very acrimonious relationship where they did not get along very well. It says that Joseph brought a bad report to his father about his brothers. That word bad report in the original Hebrew language connotates this idea of an evil or a malicious saying. And so what we don't know is if Joseph saw something his brothers were doing and went and told his father, whether he went to his father and just made something up or whether there was a rumor that Joseph decided to spread. But regardless of what happened, what we know about Joseph in the very beginning is Joseph is a tattletale. He's a snitch. Joseph is busy telling on his brothers when he should be doing something else. Now Israel, his father, loved Joseph, verse three, more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. Joseph was loved by his dad. 
In fact, we're told in scripture that Joseph's father, his, his, Joseph loved him so much because Joseph's mother was Joseph's favorite wife. Right, like imagine the the, the complexity of having favorite wives over non-favorites, but Joseph was the son of his father's favorite wife, and not only that, he was the last born. He was the the son of old age, and those of you that have multiple kids, I get it. We don't have any favorites, but there's something about that last one where we treasure those final moments of going through the phases and the seasons with them, and so Joseph was loved by his dad, and everyone knew it. How do I know they all knew it? because he gave him an ornate robe. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school or kids' church at any time, you might be saying, well, I thought it was a, a colorful robe, like a, a robe, like a coat of many colors or a technicolor dream coat or whatever word you wanna use there, right? And yes, it might have been, but what scripture doesn't say is that. We, we can infer that, we can maybe lean towards that, but the actual language it says around ornate robe was simply one that was just elegant and longer than normal. What do I mean by that? So in typical kind of ancient Israel around this time, they would take a piece of fabric that was a rectangle that was 10 feet long, and about five feet in the middle of it, they would cut a hole. They would put that on their head, and then five feet of fabric would hang this way, and five feet of fabric would hang that way, and that would be their clothes. They would tie a belt around it, and that's it. That was what they wore. So the, co- the coat usually went down just above the knees, and it was sleeveless, right? The guns were out because the sun was always out in this part of the world. And so it was just the way they wore their coat and their cloak. But when it says Joseph had an ornate robe, what it's saying is he had the typical fabric, but then they sewed another piece on each leg to make it go all the way to his ankles and another piece on each arm to go all the way to his wrist. So it was more fabric. It was more elegant. It was more expensive. Not only that, the way their coats and their cloaks were made is they were sleeveless and short so that they could go out in the field and cut down the hay or the wheat and they could tend to the livestock and do all the things that they were supposed to do in the field. But if you had a coat that went all the way to your wrist and all the way down, it made it almost impossible to do any work. And so by Joseph's father giving him this long ornate robe, what he's basically telling him is, Joseph, you're not like your 11 other brothers. They will work and labor and toil, but you get the easy life. You don't have to work because I love you so much, Joseph. You get the easy road. Now, verse four, as you can imagine, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Scripture's not gonna sugarcoat it. They basically hated him. Like, it's not that they just kind of disliked him, like sibling rivalry. No, they hated him, and it says they could not speak a kind word about him. So Joseph is the favorite, and everyone knows it. And next we read in Scripture, and I'm gonna paraphrase a lot of this story, where Joseph has these dreams. And what we find is this recurring theme over and over for the next like 13 or so chapters is Joseph's dreams, Joseph dreaming, Joseph interpreting dreams. And in these first two dreams, Joseph does something really, really stupid. Joseph goes to his brothers and says, hey guys that hate me already, Check out my fancy coat, by the way. My dad loves me, not you. You got your you know, little peasant clothes over there. But listen, I had a dream. Not like a Martin Luther King moment, but he says, I had a dream that all of you are going to bow down and worship me. Now, I have one sister. If I told her at one point in life, hey, I think you're gonna bow down and worship me, she would have punched me. 
Joseph has a, Joseph's not the smartest guy in the room, right? Like Joseph, maybe he was intentional. Maybe he's like, I just want to rub this in. Maybe he didn't have any social cues. I don't know. But you don't typically tell the 11 brothers who hate you, you're all going to bow down and worship me one day, so get ready. Not only that, Joseph has a second dream, and he goes to his father, and he says, Dad, guess what? Not only are all 11 brothers going to worship me, but so are you and Mom. Man... I don't know much about inheritance laws in first century area like this, but I would have to assume that telling your father that he is going to worship and bow down to you one day is not the move to get the bank account. But Joseph does it. And scripture tells us that his father sort of like remembers this for later, stores it up for other moments. And then scripture tells us the very next sentence that one day Joseph's brothers, all 11 of them, were off doing something in this place called Dothan and their father was worried that maybe they're scheming, maybe they're up to something. So he wanted to find out what they were doing. So he said, you know what? I'll send the tattletale to go snoop on them and see what's happening. The one I love, I'll send him and he'll come back with a report. So Joseph is sent away to check on his brothers. And in Genesis 37, we pick this up in verse 17. It says, so Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him, right? They hate him. They want to kill him now. And listen to what they did, like, oh, here comes the dreamer. Like, here comes the guy who thinks we're all going to worship him. And they said to each other, now, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns or a well that was empty, a pit in essence, and say that a ferocious animal has devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams, When Reuben, one of his brothers, heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. Come on, that's that's drastic, right? Finally, a voice of reason here. He says, don't shed any blood. Just throw him in the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. That language in the original, that stripping, is like a, a pack of hyenas or wolves surrounding a carcass, tearing it, just, just kind of just lay, laying into it. And so it says they, they, they tore the robe that was from him, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. But the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. It was basically an empty well with rocks in the bottom. Joseph is thrown into a pit and literally hits rock bottom. This is not how Joseph thought his life would go. I wonder how many of you, if you were being honest this morning, would say, there's an area of your life right now that feels like it's in a pit. Maybe it feels like rock bottom. Maybe it just feels like a hole you're sinking into deeper and deeper because something's not going like you expected. Maybe you're in this period of singleness and you thought surely by now, by this age, you'd be married. It's not what you expected. Maybe you and your spouse are in this season of dealing with infertility and all you've ever hoped or dreamed or wanted or longed for was to have a family but it feels like a pit you're stuck in. Maybe you are struggling with depression and anxiety and it feels so debilitating that there's no way you're ever gonna climb out of this hole that's so deep. Maybe you're in the middle of or just coming out of a divorce or a big breakup. You never planned for your marriage to end the way it did. 
Maybe it's your career. You're just not happy. You're not satisfied. You thought by now, at this many years in, at this far in your career, you would be in that position or that position or that pay grade or that pay scale. You would be further along than you are. It's not what you had planned. Maybe it's financial troubles. You never would have planned or thought or imagined that it would be so suffocating just looking at the bank account. The list could go on and on and on. But maybe you find yourself this morning in this pit that you never anticipated or never expected. So Joseph is at the bottom of this pit. He's hit rock bottom. And his brothers, what do they do? They decide, let's eat lunch. (laughs) I mean, at some point you're hoping, like, guys, come on. But they're like our brothers in a pit. What's the big deal? Let's sit down and have a nice sandwich. And so they go and they have lunch. And as they're having lunch, one of them says, you know, maybe we shouldn't kill him. And you're like, finally, a voice of reason. Finally, they're coming to their senses. Murdering your brother is not the best thing. Leaving him in a pit to die is not the best thing. But instead they say, hey, look, here comes a caravan of Midianite slave traders. You know what? What if we just sell our brother to the slave traders and then he's gone and he's out of the picture and we never have to deal with him again. And so that's what they do. As the slave traders are passing by, they sell Joseph for 20 pieces of silver, which in our context means nothing, but in their context was the amount of money one would pay for a child slave who is handicapped. And so they sell Joseph for this meager amount of money. They take his clothes, they rip him off of him, and they leave him naked, and they take it and they dip it in animal blood and take it back to the father and say, look, your son is dead. The one you love is dead. And Joseph, meanwhile, if you know the story, you're familiar with this, Joseph goes all the way down to Egypt and ends up in the house of a guy by the name of Potiphar, who happens to be what's called the captain of the guard, or in other words, the chief executioner for the entire nation of Egypt. Talk about life not going as planned, right? Joseph woke up that morning and his father said, hey, why don't you go, you know, see what your brothers are doing and come back and be a snitch. And Joseph's like, deal. I'm your favorite son. I'm going to put on my robe and walk out there. He goes 60 miles north, and he thought he was going to go 60 miles back home. But instead, he goes 300 miles the opposite direction and ends up in Egypt as a slave to one of the most powerful, brutal, torturous people in all of the nation. The guy who's in charge of all the executions. You mess up in this house, there's probably not three strikes. This is not what he had planned. He had the long robe. Life was supposed to be easy. Life was supposed to be good. This is not what 17-year-old Joseph thought was going to happen. And now, while he's in Egypt, Joseph, he's in Potiphar's house, and something incredibly interesting happens to him. Scripture tells us that the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. Potiphar ends up seeing the Lord's hand in Joseph and ends up kind of elevating him into all sorts of responsibilities over his house. He becomes sort of the head servant, the head slave of the entire house, and he's able to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, as long as he's under the guidelines and the direction and the vision of his master, Potiphar. But also, there's one problem. Potiphar's wife, she thinks Joseph is hot. It's not my word, like scripture, okay, it's my word. Scripture says Joseph was a handsome man. I mean, it's 2023, let's make it say what it should say, right? (laughs) Joseph was hot. 
And Potiphar's wife, well, she wanted some Joseph. (laughs) I understand there's kids in the room. We'll just move on from there, right? And so what happened is day after day after day, Potiphar's wife was making these advances toward Joseph, and Joseph was resisting them and resisting them. And it wasn't just every now and then. Scripture actually uses the phrase day after day after day. He's like a, he's like a baby giraffe being hunted by lions in this moment. Like he's just day after day relentlessly being pursued by this woman. No, no, no. Why? Because he loves Potiphar and he wants to have the respect, but he also says, why would I ever do this to the God who put me in this position? Joseph is standing firm until one day Potiphar's wife just kind of has enough. When she's making her advances at Joseph, you know, whatever she's doing in that time, she reaches over to grab him and she grabs his clothes and Joseph, like a, like a baby gazelle, freaks out and runs out of the way and she pulls his clothes and pulls a piece of it off and immediately she recognizes this is her opportunity. This guy who keeps kind of rejecting her advances, she basically holds up this garment and screams out, rape! And all the guards come rushing in and Potiphar's team comes rushing in and she basically says, Joseph came in and tried to rape me, therefore you must arrest him and put him in prison or do whatever you're going to do to him. And in Genesis 39, 20, verse 23, we see what happens. It says, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. That word prison, don't think like, a, like an above ground prison, like we think prison where there's three square meals a day and you get a yard to go play in, all of that kind of thing. No, 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 there's not workouts. There's not, this is a dungeon deep down in the earth that is full of sewage and nasty stuff. He is in a deep dark, stinky, smelly dungeon, a pit. And it's the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, verse 21, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those that were in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. This was not the plan. The plan was an easy life. The plan was to just sit back and enjoy a drink while my brothers did all the work on the farm and I wore my long coat and did nothing sweaty. Then I got thrown in a pit, then sold as a slave, then elevated to the king or like the the leader in the house, then this crazy woman who kept sexually advancing towards me cried rape and I'm now back in prison again. I'm in a dungeon, I'm in a pit, I'm in the place I don't want to be. And what happens next blows my mind. And if you're familiar with scripture, you might know this part, but sometimes I think we just kind of pass right over in these quick moments. But check this out. While Joseph is in prison, two guys who work for the king are also put into prison. And when it it transitions to this point in scripture, all it says, it's funny, it says, sometime later. And we can easily blow past this and be like, oh, just sometime later, these two guys happened. Joseph was just living his life in prison. No, no, no. Most scholars, when they look at the timeline, they agree that from the time Joseph goes to prison, from that sometime later when these two guys show up, it's been 10 years. For 10 years, he's been trapped in this dungeon. For 10 years, he's thought, this is it. It's over. This is my life. This dark, stinky, smelly pit dungeon is all I will ever know. 
And then after 10 years, two guys show up and they both have dreams. And they happen to have the dreamer of all dreamers in their midst. Joseph interprets their dreams and tells one of them, the chief cupbearer, he says, man, what's gonna happen is you're, in, in a few weeks or months or whatever, the, the Pharaoh, the king, is gonna re-elevate you and you're gonna be back in his house. And he says, man, I'm so glad I was able to interpret this for you. Here's my one request. I've been in this dungeon for 10 years. Please, when you get back to the Pharaoh, please, when you get back to the king, just remember me. Just remember the guy who helped you figure out and interpret what was going to happen in your life. Please don't forget me. And then in Genesis 40, 23, it says the chief cupbearer, the guy, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. I mean, the guy gets out and is like, oh, well, moving on, no big deal. Imagine being Joseph in this moment. I mean, you were your, you were your father's favorite. Your life was golden. It was set for you. Things were going to go easy. It was all this up and to the right kind of life. Things were going to be perfect. And all of a sudden, your brothers get jealous, and they throw you in a pit. Then they sell you to a slavery. Then you end up being a slave at the executioner's house, if that's not enough. Then you rise to power. Then this lady comes, and this lady says these things about you, and you drop back down into a pit again. Then you spend 10 years just waiting, thinking this is your entire existence. And then two dudes show up who work for the king, and they have a dream, and you interpret them, and one of them is about to be free. And when he gets free, you're thinking, finally, I'm about to be released, so finally, I can get back to my life. But he doesn't show up the next day, or the next day, or the next day, and then it's a week, and then a month, and time just keeps going, and every day, Joseph's wondering, is today the day I finally get out of this dungeon? Is today the day I finally get free? And then in verse 40, or verse 1 of chapter 41, it says, When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. Two more years. And then Pharaoh has a dream. And it's in that moment, long story short, that the first guy who got released says, hey, I know a guy who can interpret dreams. And Joseph goes to him and interprets the Pharaoh's dream. And Joseph gets elevated to the second in command of all of Egypt. And not only does he save himself, but his immediate family, the entire nation of Israel, and the future that they will have. But he also saves the entire region of the world in that time. If you are taking notes, you might write this down. Joseph had to be faithful in the dungeon to have a place in the palace. Joseph had to be faithful in the dungeon to have a place in the palace. What do you do when life doesn't go as planned? What do you do when you find yourself in a season that feels like a dungeon, a pit, rock bottom? If you're taking notes, I just want to share a couple lessons from the dungeon that I think we see in Joseph's life. And the first one is this, be faithful where God has you. Be faithful where God has you. Joseph had to be faithful in the dungeon to have a place in the palace. 
You see, it's interesting, Joseph had this gift, right? Like he could interpret dreams. That's not something most people can do. It was this God-given gift, God had given it to him and God had kind of blessed him with it and it was one of his abilities and he did it numerous times throughout the course of his life. Joseph's story is kind of like this stuff of legends, right? Like he's this teenage boy, sold into slavery, elevated to a house, put in charge, dropped back down, then he gets put in the position again, then he interprets some dreams and then he's all of a sudden working for Pharaoh and he saves the entire world and you're like, wow, that's the thing of legends and it's so cool. But here's the thing is Joseph was this normal, everyday, ordinary teenager who because of the gifting and the experience that God given him was able to do something incredible and incredible. But don't miss this. Joseph had to be faithful with his gifts in the dungeon before he could exercise them in front of Pharaoh in the palace. He had to be faithful in the dungeon to use them in the palace. I remember a season in my life I was in my late 20s. I had been in student ministry as a student pastor for about 10 years at that point. And I felt like, man, it's time for me to go and be a lead pastor. And I remember feeling like the, the season of student ministry I was in was kind of like a, a dungeon. And I, I know that's weird to say, but that's just what I felt at the time. It was this, this pit, this place that I was just kind of there and I was stuck and I was going through the motions and I wasn't finding any joy or satisfaction in it, which was interesting because even though the Lord was blessing it and we were doing incredible ministry, I just, I just felt like it was just this, this pit, this dungeon that I was in. And I knew with everything in me, the Lord was calling me to be a lead pastor. And I remember talking to my wife and she's like, man, yeah, dude, like you're gonna be so awesome. I really could see you being a lead pastor. You're gonna do great. I remember talking to my friends, and they're like, oh, yeah, so you're going to be awesome. Go for it. You're going to do it. I remember talking to my mentors, and they're like, oh, go for it. You're going to be awesome. It's going to be great. I remember talking to the search firm companies, and they're like, oh, yeah, we think you've got a huge potential. You'll be great. But it seemed like every single conversation I had with every single church, the door just kept closing. I felt like I was stuck in this dungeon. And I remember sitting down very vividly at Panera one morning with one of my mentors, and we were processing this together and we started talking about Joseph and he looked at me and I'll never forget and he said, Adam, until Pharaoh calls you, you just gotta go back to the dungeon and be faithful with your gift there. Find the butlers and the bakers and use your gift. Maybe, maybe you are in this season right now where you have really big dreams about the future. You know what God has gifted you with. You know your potential. You know what you could do if you had the shot, the opportunity. You, you know how impactful you could be for the kingdom of God. You know that that next step in your career, you are ready for that level and you could be there. You know you are ready for the next step in a relationship. You know the potential, the dreams, the hope, the future, but it seems like no matter what you do, no matter how many times you strive and work and go for it, the door after door just keeps closing and closing and closing. Maybe, just maybe, the dungeon season that you are in right now is because God wants to see you be faithful where you are, and you need to practice and use your gifts and your passions in the very place that God has you because he has ordained that place in your life for you to make a difference in his kingdom. Trust and be faithful where he has you. Joseph spent 12 years in the dungeon before God finally called him to something greater. Maybe your season is just beginning. Maybe it's at the end. 
but be faithful where he has you. Second, trust that God is with you. Trust that God is with you. We live in this instant, instant gratification, everything right now, like fully customizable Netflix kind of reality where everything in our world is instantaneous. Right, we can stream any song we want instantly. We can download any book, watch any show, find any bit of information at our fingertips. We can see what all of our friends are doing in a moment's notice. We don't have to wait, there's no pause. We have all of these great tools that are at, the, at our fingertips. And none of those are, are bad things, those are all good things. The things that we have in our lives for the kingdom work and for the gospel that we're able to do because of instantaneous information is beyond what most people 100 years ago would have ever dreamed of. But there are some downfalls, and here's one of those downfalls. Because we live in such an instant, all the time world, when something takes longer than a few days or a few weeks, we get discouraged and give up. We are the most impatient people that have ever existed on the planet Earth. It might take you a few minutes to download a song, but it might take years for your dreams to come a reality on God's timeline. That career path that you want, trust that God is with you in his time, in his place. Joseph spent 12 years in prison. Two of those were waiting every single day for the cupbearer to remember him. And what's interesting is every step of Joseph's journey from when he was 17 to when he was in the palace with the Pharaoh, every step of his journey, scripture tells us that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And we read that and we're like, yeah, man, if I was Joseph, I would recognize the Lord was with me too. Here's the thing. Joseph didn't have the story of Joseph to read. Joseph wasn't like, oh yeah, the the Lord's with me. I can read that right here. Joseph had no idea the Lord was with him. He had to trust that God was faithful even in the valleys and the dungeons when he couldn't see him or feel him or touch him. He had to trust. And listen, church, I don't know what dungeon season you are in right now, but I do know this. God is with you even in that season, even when you can't see it. And his timing is perfect. This is the recurring theme all throughout scripture. Abraham waited for the birth of Isaac. Noah waited 120 years for rain after building an ark. Moses didn't leave the Exodus until he was 80. Elijah waited beside a brook for God to move. Jesus waited 30 years to fulfill his purpose. And the list goes on and on and on. There is this consistent theme in scripture where God calls someone to something. He puts this passion or this thing, this desire in their heart. And there is a gap of obedience that occurs where God says, I'm coming for you one day to do this. But there is a season of waiting and preparation and patience. And some of you, in that season of waiting... In that season of preparation, you are frantically, humanly trying to do everything you can to make it happen, to speed up the timeline. And maybe just what you need to hear this morning is Psalm 4610 when it says this, stop striving and know that I am God. Stop trying to manufacture God's plan for your life and just trust that God is good. He is in control. First, we're going to be faithful where God has us. Second, we're going to trust that he is with us. And third, we're going to embrace how he is shaping us. Embrace how he is shaping you. 
There's this theme in scripture you see where training for greater things always takes place in lesser moments. Before Joseph can interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, he has some rough edges that God needs to work on. Like, if you look back at his, the, the progression of how he interpreted dreams, it's quite interesting. And I miss this so many times when I read this. Let me, let's just go back to the very first dreams that Joseph had. Listen to how he describes them in Genesis chapter 36, verse, or 37, verse 6. He says to them, he says to his brothers, listen to this dream I had. So Joseph's first conversation around a dream is, hey, listen to this thing I had. I had a dream. And it's about me, and you're all bowing down to me. In the very beginning, Joseph's gifting, his potential, his passion was very self-centered, focused on him. I had a dream and you all will bow down to me. Later on when he's in the dungeon, after God has roughed, smoothed down some of the edges of his life, look what he says in chapter 40, verse eight. When they come to him and they have dreams, the two people, Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So Joseph, this is the first time he says, listen, all interpretations belong to God, but I'm still pretty gifted. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. He went from 100% arrogant, 100% prideful to saying, you know what? Like, yeah, God has a part in this, but like, I'm pretty good too. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. And then he gets in front of Pharaoh, chapter 41, verse 16. And what does he say? I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Listen, in the course of Joseph's dungeon experience, he went from, it's all about me, to God has a part, but I'm still pretty good, to it's 100% God, and it's all him. Joseph, don't miss this, Joseph was not ready for the palace if it wasn't for the crucible of the dungeon. The lessons that we learn in the dungeons of our lives prepare us for the palace moments. What does that mean? Joseph is being shaped for greatness. He was not ready to interpret the dreams for Pharaoh. If he would have at the very beginning, it would have made it all about him and probably ruined the entire story. I don't know about you, but... When I look back at my own life, there are so many moments where I thought, man, I am ready for whatever's next, whether it's a career move or I'm ready to start on the team or I'm ready to be the you know, one spot in golf or whatever it happened to be, I thought I was ready and I look back now and I'm like, I was so not ready because I had so many rough edges that God needed to wear down first. And here's the funny part. Everything in us hates Dungeon, pit, prison moments in life. What do we, I mean, right? We, we think, God, like, I know God wants to teach me something, but like, can't he teach it while I'm on the mountaintop? Like, go ahead and, go ahead and give me the promotion. Go ahead and, you know, let this thing happen and then teach me the lesson. <laughs> life doesn't work that way, right? Like, here's the reality. Like the reality is when we see in scripture is that every single person who did something great for the kingdom of God, and if you go outside of scripture and look at every person in the history of humanity who did something great for the kingdom of God, that unanimously all of them had a dungeon moment where God was preparing them, he was shaping them, he was molding them. Why? Because when it comes to life, you can either have growth 
or you can have comfort. You rarely grow when you are comfortable. And that is the story of Joseph, that God takes these broken, dungeon pit moments where we hate them and we wish they never existed and they would go away and life would be great when all the detours happen. God takes those moments to conform us more and more to his image because ultimately the only thing that matters in life is that when we die, we look more like Jesus than we did when we were existing. That is the point. You can have growth or you can have comfort. And for some of you, maybe you are in the middle of an uncomfortable dungeon season right now. Just a question, what's God teaching you? Like, Don't waste your dungeon. God's teaching you something. And you can wish you weren't in it, and you can wish it would go away and life would be great, or you can lean in and say, God, how are you shaping me and molding me more into your image? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are a God who works not only in mountaintops, but specifically in valleys. You are a God who takes dungeons and pits and prisons, things where we feel trapped and there's no way forward, and you use those moments to shape us, to form us spiritually more and more into your image in Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning at any of our campuses, physical or online, and if you're being honest in this moment of transparency and vulnerability, you would say that there is a area of your life right now that it feels like a dungeon. It's not what you expected or planned, and it's difficult and hard. I would love to just pray with you. If that's you, would you just, kind of in the stillness of this moment, would you just slip up your hand? hands all over the room. Father, I pray for every hand that is raised that you would be with them in the dungeon. God, that when life doesn't go as we planned, we would recognize that your detours are so much better. God, I pray for peace. I pray for patience. I pray for the ability to discern where you are refining our character in the midst of hard moments. As we continue praying, maybe you're here today and you would say, man, I, I, Adam, you're, you sound so hopeful. How? Let me just tell you, I am hopeful that no matter what life throws my way, no matter what comes, that God is good because Jesus Christ is my hope. And maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. Can I just say, you are not here by accident. You are here for a reason. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was born and he lived a life and died a perfect sinless life for you, for your sins, your mistakes. And three days later, he rose from the grave. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. He defeated everything that existed that was oppressing God's people. And he brought hope to the world so that no matter what valleys or dungeons or prisons we are going through in life, we have hope that we will overcome through Jesus who lives in us. And maybe you are here today, whatever campus you happen to be at, and if you're being honest, you don't believe that, but you want to. I would love to help you take that step. 
If you want to believe in Jesus for the very first time and put your hope in him, would you just, wherever you are, be bold enough to raise your hand? If your hands are up, I just want you to pray this prayer with me. Father, I am a sinner. I need you. Jesus, come into my life. Make me new. Be my Lord. Today I turn, I repent, and run to you, my hope for salvation. Jesus, I love you. Amen.